Gary loves his job. Gary loves his job because he has it down to a fine art. He's worked in the local Tesco for so long that he's part of the woodwork. He knows that when he gets there, he doesn't actually ever have to do very much and he can cut corners without facing very many consequences. He lets the younger employees get stuck in while he takes it nice and slow. But Gary is starting to frustrate everyone, including his manager. Gary doesn't talk about it much, but the staff know he goes to church. They're beginning to think that Christians have no interest in the real world. Hillary also loves her job. Hillary loves her job a little bit too much. She's head of the department in the local secondary school and she just loves to go above and beyond for her pupils. She stays after school most days to cover extracurricular activities. Every Saturday morning she goes with the girls hockey team to their matches. When she is at home she's thinking about school. Not content to rest on her laurels, she keeps working on her lesson plans to make them better and better every year. Her husband and her kids have learned to just leave her to it. Her pastor asked her if she'd be interested in putting her teaching gifts to use by leading a women's Bible study, but she said she didn't have the time because of her many work commitments. Now, Gary and Hillary may be on different ends of the spectrum, but what they both have in common is that they have forgotten what the Bible says about work. What should our attitude be to our work? How do we make sure we are not underworkers or overworkers? Why does our work life even matter? Surely what matters is what we believe. Well, let's see what Paul has to say to this uh, group of um, believers in Thessalonica in this final chapter of 2 Thessalonians. So far in this letter, Paul has been counselling the church in Thessalonica through some problems that have been coming at them from different angles. Some people in the local community have been persecuting them and some false teachers have been spreading misinformation that the Lord had already come back. The answer to both those problems was for Paul to teach them about what was really going to happen when Jesus does come back. But now in chapter 3, Paul returns to the here and now as he deals with one last group of people who have been disrupting the church. This final group is a group of church members who aren't earning their keep. They are able to work, but for some reason they are not working. Instead, they are idle busybodies leeching off the church. It seems they aren't paying for their food, and this is putting a burden on others to feed them. And on top of that, they are squandering their time unproductively, distracting and disrupting other people who are trying to work. This is a group that Paul has addressed before. He warned them about their idleness in 1 Thessalonians. And we don't know exactly why they are idle, but most likely they have misunderstood something Paul taught them about Christ's return when he was teaching them in person before these letters were written. It could be that as Paul taught the church about the return of Christ it became a hot topic. Some came to the conclusion that Christ's return was imminent and so there was no point in working. Just like we probably wouldn't go looking for a job if we knew we were just about to move to a different country, they don't see the point in working for such a short period of time. That would also fit quite well with the fact that some of the church were taken in by this false teaching that Christ had returned. If there had been a group of believers in Thessalonica who thought that Christ was about to return any second, they wouldn't need much convincing that he had. There might be a different reason for their idleness. They could simply just be being lazy. But what we can say for definite is that this group of church members have forgotten the proper place of work in the Christian life. Instead of working to provide for themselves and live self-sacrificially to bless others, they are burdening the church. 
And so there is a separation between what they believe and how they behave. A gap is opened up between word and work. And so as we work our way through this text, we'll see that this is a very serious issue for Paul. An issue that is so serious that if this group in the church continue to ignore his call to repent and get back to work, he says the rest of the church should no longer associate with them. It's that serious. So let's look at how Paul deals with this group of idle busybodies. And as we do, we will see how a Christian should approach their work. Now, as Paul deals with them, we expect him to come out guns blazing with a rebuke, don't we? This group have ignored his first warning. Surely Paul is about to let rip. But no, before he addresses the idol directly, he begins with some prayer requests for him and his team. And then Paul prays for the church himself. And Paul does that because he firmly believes and wants to remind these Thessalonians that God is a worker. God is a worker. Prayer is what naturally happens when we believe that God hears our prayers and that he is abundantly able to act. If we did not believe that God is a God who works on behalf of his people, what would be the point in praying? <laughs> if we didn't believe that God works on our behalf, we wouldn't even be Christians because being a Christian means trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That he endured tremendous suffering and died as a sacrifice, taking the punishment we deserved upon himself. And that he was raised from the dead, defeating sin and death, so that those who believe in him may have eternal life. That work of Christ is the gospel. That is this message of the Lord in verse 1 that Paul and his team are proclaiming wherever they go. And so his first prayer request is that the Thessalonians would pray for them so that the gospel would spread rapidly and be honoured. Paul literally says pray that the gospel would run well and have a glorious reception wherever it goes. Paul is imagining the gospel going out like the torch in the Olympic torch relay. In the weeks uh, leading up to the Olympics the torch is lit and the runners will take the torch throughout the host country from town to town. And as it makes its way uh, to where uh, the Olympic Games are being held, everywhere it goes, it receives an incredible reception. People will line the streets wanting to catch a glimpse of the Olympic flame. That's what Paul wants them to ask God to do with his word. Because Paul knows that God is at work in his world to spread his word. And God is the one causing his word to be honoured and received in the hearts of those who hear it. God told Jeremiah that he is watching over his word to perform it. He told Isaiah that the word that goes out from his mouth does not return to him empty. This prayer is fully in line with God's agenda. It's fully in line with what God is working to do in the world. Paul then asked him to pray that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul knows that Christians and all those who want to share the gospel are in a spiritual battle. There is a proxy war going on. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. The evil one is at work behind all those who are hostile to the gospel. These wicked men are just pawns in the devil's hands as he attempts to stop the spread of God's word and prevent the church from growing. And again, we can see that Paul's prayer is in line with God's agenda. In verse 3, Paul says, God is faithfully working to strengthen his people and protect them from the evil one. God is at work to empower his people to carry out his mission. God is working to make sure they don't fail and the word continues to spread. Okay, so Paul has his prayer request in. Surely now it must be time to lay on these idle believers. But no, once Paul has given the Thessalonians his prayer request, he turns to pray for them. He prays that God will be at work in their lives doing what only God can do. In verse 5, Paul prays that the Lord would direct their hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. 
He's praying that they would know God's love and that God would enable them to persevere in their faith. What an encouraging prayer for the Thessalonians to hear Paul pray for them. Not only is God working outwardly to expand the church, he's working inwardly to strengthen the church as well. So why does Paul start like this? Why doesn't he crack on with reprimanding these idle believers? Paul could just be simply asking for prayer. He doesn't need any other reason than that. But I think that Paul does have another reason in mind. Paul's encouragement is designed to propel them forward in service of Christ. As these believers in Thessalonica hear Paul's prayer requests and his prayers for them, Paul wants them to have a light bulb moment. The idle Thessalonians are sitting in the congregation hearing this letter read out to them. They are supposed to be remembering that God is not idle. God is working for the growth of his church. God is the one spreading his word. God is performing his word. He is making sure it is received and believed wherever it goes. God is raising up gospel workers and delivering them from hostile forces in the world. God is strengthening and protecting his people. God is making sure his people know that he loves them and God is making sure that they will endure to the end. God is not idle. And as Paul reminds these believers of God's work, he wants them to get excited. As they're sitting there, they should want to get involved. He's wetting their appetite for the mission. Paul wants them to join in the work so that the word of God will be honoured in other places, just as it was with them in Thessalonica. As Christians, they should share God's heart for the word or the work of spreading his word. As followers of Christ, they too should live sacrificial lives for the glory of God. These believers who are able to work, but are idle and are burdening the church, well, they're doing the opposite, aren't they? They are hindering the work. They are living for themselves. And the challenge for us is this. Are we excited by what God is working to do in this world? Are we praying that God would spread his word and cause it to be honoured wherever it goes? Are we joining in the work? As individuals, are we seeking to share the message of the Lord with whoever we meet? Corporately, are we working in line with God's agenda, seeking to do our bit in training up and supporting gospel workers, pastors, youth pastors, evangelists, children's workers, the gospel relay runners who will take the, his word out like the Olympic torch? Or have we been hindering the work by living for ourselves? This is the challenge that Paul is about to make even more explicit in the following verses. And so having laid out the work that God is uh, doing in his world, he now turns to address this issue directly. The gloves are off. He's about to make it very clear to the church in Thessalonica that as Christians, we are to be workers. We are to be workers. Paul begins by addressing the whole church about these people who are disrupting the church with their idleness. Look how seriously he takes this problem in verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. We have sadly become very accustomed to the idea of social distancing in the last few months. Paul wants these believers in Thessalonica to socially distance themselves from the virus of idleness and selfishness that has infected some people in the church. And just in case it, it didn't sink in the first time, he says it again to them at the end of this section in verse 14 and 15. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. 
Paul is saying that if these idol believers don't get their act together, having now been warned twice, that the church in Thessalonica are to exercise church discipline and remove them from the fellowship. That's how serious this matter is in Paul's eyes. Now this is not the primary point of this passage, but we would be wrong to miss out on what Paul teaches us here about church discipline. Notice that Paul only calls for discipline because of their public, deliberate and persistent disobedience to his teaching. That's the basis for any case to be brought in front of an entire congregation. Continual and unrepentant disobedience to God's word. And discipline looks like the church no longer associating with them, keeping away from them. The unrepentant person is to be removed from membership. The responsibility of disciplining these idle believers lies with the whole congregation. They are all to do it in a gentle manner, not being hostile like they would uh, be to an enemy. And the purpose of these disciplinary me measures is not to humiliate them or destroy them, but rather to make them feel ashamed. In other words, Paul is saying he wants these idle Thessalonians to recognise that they need to repent and make a change going forward. He wants them to be reinstated and restored to the church once they have come to their sentence. That is the purpose of church discipline. It's like waking someone up by throwing them into an ice bath. It's supposed to shock those who have stopped humbly submitting to the word of God and seeking to live it out in their lives into repentance. It's supposed to wake them up. Because if there are people in church who aren't committed to living in humble obedience to God's word, then it becomes very hard for the rest of the congregation to affirm their profession of faith. Submitting to the teaching of Christ and his apostles and acknowledging and repenting of our sin are the marks of a true Christian. And even more seriously, having people like that in a congregation only serves to damage the witness of Christ in the community. As a church, we are to be a little embassy of God's kingdom. We can't allow any of our members to persistently damage the reputation of our king. That would undermine the work of God where he has placed us. It would hinder the work of the gospel. And so although we should always hope that it would never be the case, there may be times when a church has to exercise discipline. We are to work to make sure that we are properly representing Christ as a congregation. Now church discipline is important, but that's not all that Paul has to say to this church as they deal with these idle believers. He's still hopeful it won't have to get to that point. And what he writes in the rest of this chapter is meant to bring these people to repentance so that the church doesn't have to take action. And to start with, Paul reminds them of how he lived when he was with them in Thessalonica. Look at what he says in verses 7 to 10. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. When Paul was with them, he laid down a marker. He showed them how they were to live. He was not idle when he was with them. He didn't eat anyone's food without paying for it, like these idle believers appeared to have been doing. Quite the opposite. He worked night and day so that he wouldn't be a burden to the church. He lived sacrificially. And that wasn't an idea that Paul just came up with. He was imitating Christ as he did that. He was demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the supreme example of sacrificial service. This word that Paul was spreading of the sacrificial love of Jesus, who took on burdens, he was living out amongst them. There was no gap between what he believed and taught and how he lived his life. His lifestyle supported his message. And Paul says that is how the Thessalonians are supposed to live as they bear witness to Christ in their community. Just as Paul imitated Christ, they are to do the same. And then finally, Paul addresses these idle believers directly. 
In verse 11 to 13, he says, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Paul tells these people who are not providing for their own needs and who are preventing others from working to get back to work. They are not to think that getting stuck in and working for the practical necessities of life is above their station. Instead of living for themselves and their own pleasure, they are to settle down and stop being a burden to the church. They are to close the gap between their lifestyle and what they claim to believe. They are commanded to turn their backs on their selfish way of living and follow Paul's example in imitating Christ. As for the rest of the church, they are not to be tempted to go down the same path. Paul calls on them to never tire of doing good. They are to keep working for the glory of God in Thessalonica. If their faith is genuine, they will keep producing good works. They will keep joining in God's work to spread the gospel and grow the church. So having seen how Paul deals with this group of idle believers in Thessalonica, how are we to apply this to our lives? Is Paul saying that every single person in church needs to be in full-time employment? Can there be no dependents in a congregation? Is he saying that there's no place for stay-at-home parents? No. Paul is saying that whatever God has called us to do, we are to imitate Christ and do it self-sacrificially. He's saying that wherever God has placed us, we are not to grow weary of doing good works so that the church might be built up and God would receive the glory. We're not supposed to be like Gary, cutting corners at every chance. Wherever God has placed us, we are to work hard. If you are in secular employment, you are to do it for the glory of God. There is no sacred secular divide in Paul's mind. Our work is spiritual. Having a good work ethic is a spiritual thing. We are to work hard to provide what we need for our families and then we should be looking outward, looking to give sacrificially to help other people in church who might be struggling to make ends meet and to support the work of the gospel. We are to be a witness in the workplace and how we go about our, our, our business, keeping a close eye on our language and on our integrity, working hard and being the sort of person that people love working with, always ready to share Christ when people ask you why you're different. If you are staying at home to raise children, you are giving up your life and working hard to raise your kids in the way they should go. That is following in the footsteps of Christ and that brings so much glory to God. Don't read this chapter and think that you're useless to the church because you're not earning money. That's not true at all. In fact, it couldn't be further from the truth. What you're doing is so valuable. God is using you to make disciples as you model Christ to your kids and teach them about him. Now, there will be people listening to this who may not be able to work. Maybe you have a physical reason for that, or maybe you've been made redundant and you're, you're currently looking for a job. Don't misinterpret this passage and think that you're a burden to the church. Don't think that you are inadequate because you aren't in a job. Paul is specifically talking to a group of believers who can and should be working, but are choosing not to. He's talking to a group who are wasting everyone's time and persistently burdening the church with their attitude. That's an important distinction to make. Whether it's permanently or for a season, you can still live sacrificially and use this time for God's glory. For some, that might be working to stay faithful to Christ through suffering and illness, to show the people you know that you value Christ above everything, that he is glorious. 
And that is not an easy calling by any means. That's hard work. And we do pray for those brothers and sisters in our congregation, that they would especially know God's grace and comfort as they do that. For those who can work but can't get work, that might mean using this time of unemployment wisely and conducting yourself in a way that honours him as you patiently wait for the right opportunity. You don't have to earn money to be useful in God's kingdom. You can still bless others and advance the gospel in many other ways. We also can't read this text and decide that we need to become workaholics. We aren't supposed to be like Hillary either, spending all our time thinking about work. We aren't called to climb a career ladder for our own selfish ambitions. It's possible to be a burden to the church by overworking. Maybe you're so busy that you're not serving the work of the gospel effectively in other ways. Are you so concerned about your career and your success that you're too busy to serve the church with your time and your gifts? Maybe there's a young man or woman in the generation coming behind you who would really benefit from your investment in them. But that would mean you don't get as much work done. Maybe you're a busy dad and your family could really do with seeing more of you because mum's voice is beginning to sound like wallpaper and they really need a godly father uh, around to help with discipline. Don't be so busy with the things of this world that you're lazy for the things of God. Church family, let's ask God for wisdom as we think about these things, as we all think how this applies to us individually. Let's make sure we are not living selfish lives, but we are seeking to live sacrificially for the benefit of others and the growth of the church. Just as we close tonight, the main thing we need to ask ourselves from this passage is this. Have we grown tired of doing good? Has a gap opened up between what we believe and what we do? Let's not forget that our God is a worker. Let's not forget that what he wants to do in this world and to spread the gospel and build his church. And let's not forget that he has called us to be a part of that. He's calling us to lay down our lives to serve Jesus Christ. He's calling us to live in a way that brings glory to him and shows his love and his glory to the people around us. As we end this chapter and we end this book, notice how Paul signs off the letter. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is not just an email signature at the bottom that he's forgotten about. This is the heartbeat of Paul's mind. In all these things that we've seen over the past three Sunday nights, we need the grace of God. We need to ask God to help us as we work for his glory. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a worker. We thank you uh, for what you've done um, in history to bring people to salvation, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that he rose again, conquering death and sin, that we might have eternal life. And Lord, we thank you that you're at work spreading uh, your word, spreading the gospel and causing it to be honoured and received by all who hear it. Lord God, would you help us to live sacrificially? Would you help us to think about our work and whether or not something needs to change? Would you help us uh, to work hard, but not be so busy that we forget about gospel work and the work of the church. Lord, help us never to be a burden, to never fall into laziness or selfishness, but to always work for the benefit of others. And Lord, we, we do ask your grace to help us to do that. And we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.